0: as I read uh, Exodus 35, which is, in essence, a repetition of uh, these passages I read earlier. Sabbath and the tabernacle. And here is what we read. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but for the... Or, or but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you a sabbath of rest to the lord whoever does any work on it shall be put to death you shall kindle, kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the sabbath day and moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of israel saying this is the thing which the lord commanded saying take from you take from among you an offering to the lord whoever is of a of a willing heart let him bring it as an offering to the lord gold silver and bronze blue purple and scarlet thread, fine linen and goat's hair, ram skin dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light and spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones uh, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded the tabernacle, its tent, its covering, its clasps, its boards, its bars, its pillars and its sockets. The ark and its poles with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering, the table and its poles, all its utensils and the showbread. Also, the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamps and the oil for the light, the incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, the screen for the, o- for the door uh, at the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze grating, its poles, all its utensils and the laver in its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets and the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the garments of ministry for ministering in the holy places, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing and they brought the Lord's offering for the work of the tabernacle of meeting, for all its service and for the holy garments. They came both men and women, as many as had a willing heart and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord and every man with whom was found uh, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair and red skins of rams and badger skins brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering, and everyone with whom was found acacia wood uh, for any work of service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, purple, and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom spun yarn of goat's hair, the rulers uh, brought onyx stones and the stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate and spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord by the hand of Moses had commanded to be done. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called uh, by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to um, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work in all manner of artistic work. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him and Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan. He has filled them with skill to do all manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry maker in blue, purple and scarlet thread and fine linen. And of the weaver, who uh, those who do every work and those who design artistic works. And let us pray together. Father, having read your word, we now ask you uh, that you might open it up and shed new light on it through the preaching, especially that you might add your blessing uh, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we saw last time, uh, the, the third installment of Exodus 34, which is really the high point, or it's one of two high points in Exodus, perhaps three. You have to Exodus 3, the burning bush, Exodus 34, and, and then standing in the center of those, Exodus 20, with the Ten, 10 Commandments. Uh, but, but following that, the, the shining face of Moses is the third episode in chapter 34. We, we return to, to simply uh, the giving uh, of the law in this detailed way. In fact, what we have is Moses reading the law or preaching the law in the presence of the people as the basis of the covenant that God was renewing. And here it isn't the Lord telling him what he is to say. That's what we found in earlier passages on the mountain. But now Moses is actually saying it. He gathers the people and he preaches to them at the foot of the mountain. It really is a picture exactly of what we're doing here. We're gathered around the word. He's placed the word, uh, let us say, in my hands and I'm delivering it to you. Or we we could uh, have a a far grander and better example, uh, seeing our Lord in the Sermon on the Mount gathering his disciples And preaching to them. That's the scene that we have here. And so we find in verses uh, 1 through 19. uh, Moses the preacher of God. And the people responding to that sermon in verses 20 through 29. With eager obedience. And then with a final note concerning who the master builders were to be in verses 30 through 35. Now those are the three points of the passage. Those will not be the three points of the sermon. I want to draw out, uh, as I often do, the main points of significance from those things. And the first thing we see uh, is Moses' sermon. And the focus of his sermon, not surprisingly, is upon worship. And in particular, the day of worship and the place of worship. Uh, the, the day of worship was the Sabbath day. The place of worship was to be the tabernacle. And so there is the emphasis... The emphasis upon worship and again the covenant that God was renewing is seen as bringing the people into a relationship both where God's will is known through the preaching and observed uh, but, but also uh, as, as setting constraints and, and structure as to the worship of God. That is the purpose of the covenant. And so uh, to that end we see that uh, God does not leave us in the dark. As to how it is he would be worshipped. And in order to make these things plain. He sends preachers like Moses. And he gives them his words. And his commandments to tell the people. Verses 1 and 4. Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together. And said to them. These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Verse 4. And Moses spoke to all the congregation of the children of Israel. Saying this is the thing which the Lord commanded. Saying. And again, in this, we see the faithfulness of Moses, the man of God, in that he preached God's will and not his own. In other words, you see him here standing before the people. It's time to give the sermon. He spent time with God. He studied his word, you might say. And what is he to do in that moment? Does he say, well, here's something that God said, and now I'm going to launch from that and tell you what I want to say. I think that's a fairly accurate description of modern preaching. Uh, but you can't very well call that faithful. Faithfulness is found in what we find Moses doing here. And that is setting forth the will of God and then telling the people what they're supposed to do. In other words, what God wants the people to do, not what the preacher wants the people to do. And so the sermon was a time to do that. It was a time to, to uh, set forth the will of God and... And you really get the sense of of how the Puritans viewed preaching here. But it's right here in the text. And to stir them and rouse them to obedience. And that's exactly what we find. We find them roused to obedience. But I'll save that uh, for a little bit uh, later on. There There were two points of this sermon with the broader focus on worship. The first was, as I said, the day. The day of worship was the Sabbath. You find that uh, in verses 2 and 3. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath rest to the Lord, and so on. This is a familiar emphasis. You read Exodus and you find the Sabbath coming up over and over and over again. And you read your Old Testaments and you find it coming up over and over again. And then you come to the New Testament and you see that the Pharisees were testing Jesus on the Sabbath And constantly pointing to the fact that in their minds he was overturning the Sabbath. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. What are you talking about? And so as you read the Bible, what you notice if you read it straight through is that the Sabbath is something that is continually emphasized over and over and over again. Do you remember how it is that God presented the Sabbath command on Mount Sinai? This is a point I made before, but let me make it again. He says, remember the Sabbath day. And why does he say remember? Because the truth is, as you know, and as I know, that we're apt to forget. There is no commandment in, in the whole scheme of the Ten Commandments that we are more apt to forget as to our obedience. Perhaps not as to our knowledge, but as to our obedience. We are forgetful in our Sabbath keeping. And God is true to his word, for he is ever reminding us. He is ever reminding us in his word to keep the Sabbath. And so it really is impossible for for Moses and his preaching, or for me and my preaching, in setting forth the will of God and and, and to, to ignore this emphasis. Continually God is setting before you reminders to do better in your Sabbath keeping. Not to just know the will of God. You ought to keep your Sabbaths. There's still Ten Commandments, beloved, not nine. And you ought to be stirred through the preaching to keep the fourth commandment. And so God doesn't just give us the Sabbath, but he gives us preaching to emphasize the Sabbath. This is something, uh, a duty that we can never hear too often. Especially at times when we're busy. Uh, you realize uh, it, not only God was emphasizing it here, but there was a specific reason. He was telling them, I want you to construct the tabernacle, I want you to make your offerings. But the temptation here, as ever, in their busyness, and even in their zeal for the tabernacle of God was to set aside their Sabbaths and say, uh, our hands are going to be busy with work on the Sabbath. The Lord said, I don't want you to do that. He, he, he offers strong words of warning here, as he did in the earlier passage, that the one who does this will die. He says, whoever does any work on the Sabbath shall be put to death. This is one of the, the more striking aspects of the old covenant. There was a sternness to it. That we don't find in the New Covenant. Don't think of God as easy in the, in, the new, in the New Covenant. If you do then you might want to read about Ananias and Sapphira. But uh, but but you see there was a, a special severity to the law. And sometimes we think because that severity is removed with respect to the Sabbath. That the Sabbath itself is removed. Well don't do that. But But we do realize that in this economy. The Old Covenant. That people were put to death for Sabbath breaking. In fact... Uh, I, I don't know where it is uh, in the scheme of the Pentateuch, or at least I don't remember now, but there, there, there is an incident where a man is put to death for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Uh, and, and we notice, again, the severity of the law under the Old Covenant, but not just that. That would be to minimize the point. There's a bigger point that God is indicating. And he says, I don't want you to do this. If you do it, you shall surely be put to death. And, and he even says, I don't even want you to kindle any fire, which means it's just another way of saying I don't want you to be to be busy working on the Sabbath. And the reason, again, is because we are so prone to break this commandment. Our hearts, it seems, are set against it. And it was the case for Israel. And so God attaches strong warnings to the Sabbath breaker in order to instill in them a fear and a reverence for the Lord as to his worship recognizing uh, that false worship will be punished, but also uh, a- a abstaining from true worship will be punished as well. So the Sabbath is there set, uh, set before them. And again, the preaching, uh, this, this is to be a theme of preaching. It is not something that we can ever hear too often. And, and it's something, just to speak personally <laughs> It's something that, uh, just thinking of the, the language of the Sunday school class on Presbyterianism, this is uh, a distinctive el- element of the pilgrim identity of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. We're a Sabbath-keeping denomination, uh, and we believe we have good reason for that. We believe that's the emphasis of Scripture. And, and, and I want to see, and I, I'll just keep harping on this point, even if not with the level of success I hope, I want to see this church is known for keeping the Sabbath and for its carefulness in Sabbath obedience, uh, keeping the whole day holy unto the Lord. This is something this will this will always be a theme of my preaching. But the second point of his sermon was not so much the construction of the tabernacle, but again, preaching to the people, setting forth the will of God and stirring them to obedience that they were to make their contributions to the tabernacle, not on the Sabbath. But on the other six days, there was work to be done. Now, all of this that he says here is a repetition of what uh, he has said before in the earlier chapters. But as the covenant now was broken and was needing uh, or had been broken, rather, and now had been renewed. So these things needed to be restated. There was need for workers. And so, too, there was need for contributions. The emphasis is, uh, God, or, 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 God through Moses speaking to the whole congregation all had a part to play. There was an opportunity for everyone to make their contribution, whether through labor or through, uh, through means. So long as they had the heart for the work. And we see from the response, verse 21, how eager many were uh, to do so. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred, and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord offering for the work of the tabernacle, uh, and so on and so forth. We see people contributing, we see people doing. One of the things that strikes uh, you as you read this passage is that uh, there was a variety of offerers. We read of uh, the men making their contribution, but that's not all. We also read of the women, and then we read of the rulers, and we even read of the children. And do you know we were just discussing this on Wednesday night at session? Uh, This very point that everybody has a part to play. It isn't just for the deacons. It isn't just for the men or for the women behind the scenes, even the children ought to come ready to do something for the Lord to to make a small contribution to the work of the church everybody should be uh doing their part or offering what they can uh, i just just some of the children after family night supper we were, were cleaning the chairs that's exactly what we see here but in relation to the sermon Uh, there's a bigger point being made again it's the sermon which is preached and the people which are motivated and that is a picture of exactly what ought to happen after the sermon people leaving the house of god verse 20 all the congregation of the children of israel departed from the presence of moses they went out that back door and what did they do well they didn't forget the sermon and go on with their lives they did exactly exactly what Moses had told them to do. It had not only passed through their minds, but it reached into their hearts. It stirred their hearts. And now they were busy and eager to do the work of the Lord. But, but, but as we see them, uh, doing that, as we find, in other words, an instance of what, uh, we call the dialogical principle where God speaks and the people responds, I want to notice certain things about, about this relationship. The kinds of things that covenant worship requires, all of which are present in this episode, both in what Moses is saying ought to happen and then what we read in verses 20 through 29 uh, and even in 30 through 35 did happen. Now, again, as a first point here. We find uh, the, the, the centrality of the reading and the preaching and the hearing of the word of God. We sometimes stop with the reading and the preaching. We forget that the hearing of the word of God is part of worship, too. And that's something which, as I've said, really stands at the center of this passage. Uh, but let me just focus first on the reading and the preaching. This is an indispensable element of covenant worship. Uh, Old covenant, new covenant. It's the same thing. You find God sending his preachers, whether Moses or the apostles Or whomever. If we were to look at it from the standpoint of the Reformation. And the the reforms that they were bringing to worship. One of the things they did. In fact one of the most revolutionary things they did. Was to place uh, the sermon at the center of the worship service. An expository sermon. In fact from their perspective. And this is certainly biblical. You couldn't even call a worship service. Worship without a sermon. That everyone could hear and understand. These services in Latin that they were holding were no good. The the purpose of worship or one of the many purposes of worship is that God's will might be made known. Not only with regard to worship itself, but also what God would have us to do once we leave the hour of worship. And so this is uh, this is absolutely essential to the whole picture of what God is looking for, of what he expects of us. If the better part of the service is devoted to the sermon, let us see why that is. And let us realize, as we see here, that the preaching is one thing, but so too is the hearing and the putting into practice. The sermon has done nothing until it has stirred our hearts to obedience. But that is only one part of the picture. There are many other things which uh, is required if covenant worship is to occur. Obviously, the first emphasis of Moses' sermon is the Sabbath. One of the things that you will notice if you were to read our directory of worship is not just the importance of public worship, but the importance of our Sabbaths, that God has given us the Sabbath as a day to worship him. That's his primary pur- purpose as a day of rest and worship. It doesn't, in other words, view these as two separate ideas, but as two ideas which are intimately related. Again, I would I will say God gave us our Sabbaths in order to worship him. As two sides of the same coin, and as, uh, one as an indispensable element to the other. If you take away the Sabbath, where do you leave room for worship? Covenant worship. But one of the oddest features of, of, uh, of modern Christianity is that these two ideas have been totally disassociated. And, uh, and you have very little sense left of what I've been calling covenant worship. That is not the emphasis of scripture. Nor is that, again, Uh, As as I've been pointing out, uh, the emphasis of our directory of worship, I'm going to actually read from it uh, in a little bit. Returning to the idea of preaching, we see faithfulness in the preaching, but then a willing heart in the hearing and the doing. In other words, one of the things that I would notice from this passage is we often talk about the faithfulness of the preacher. He's a faithful preacher. He preaches the word of God. Or it's a faithful church. But whenever we say it's a faithful church, we're talking about the preaching. But, but I don't think that is an adequate definition of what a faithful church is. That's only half of the equation. You have to have faithful sheep. People have to be faithful in doing the word of God. Then you have a faithful church. And that's what we have a picture of here. Again, the covenantal structure of worship. God making his will known, but we have to do it. We have to be faithful in doing the will of God. That is certainly a point which is being underscored here. The faithful hearing and doing of the will of God. That's the thing that stands out, I think, to me more than anything else in this passage. You notice the emphasis of Moses' sermon. Whoever is of a willing heart, let him bring his offering to the Lord, verse 5. And we see that many had such a heart, verse 21. We have the idea here of the free will offering. God, through the preaching of Moses, was not compelling the people to act. He was inviting them to do so out of their own sense of goodwill and thanksgiving to the Lord and out of a desire to see the worship of God prosper. This is the same principle that you find in the New Covenant and in the New Testament. God does not make rules as to what is offered. He leaves it to the to the discretion of the offerer uh, with with the caveat that we ought to give according to what we are able and with a cheerful heart as unto the Lord. Giving in the New Testament is not so much seen as as law but as a grace. Second Corinthians chapter nine verses six through eight I've been summarizing those verses, but that's what you have here in the preaching of Moses. I don't even want you to bother unless you want to do it, God is saying. And we see that each who gave, whether it was rulers, men, women, skilled workers or unskilled workers, children, they gave as he or she could. There was a great variety in the contribution. I don't need to read it here, but if you read through it, that's the sense that you give or or that you get. Some gave this, another gave that. Some did this, another did that. But it was all alike pleasing to the Lord, who minds not so much the quality of the offering as the disposition of the heart in the offerer. The small contribution of the child was every bit as much as pleasing to the Lord as the skillful work of the artisans. So long as they were acting in faith. He loves the widow's two mites more than the Pharisees who gave out of their abundance and only to be seen by men. That is ever the principle. But this also leads uh, to another point. And that is that there is something for all to do. Even the children, again, can and ought to make their contribution. No one is excluded in the work of worship and Christian, uh, Christian gathering and assembly. God delights in the service of all and he despises none who come with a ready and a willing and a cheerful heart. This is, again, the emphasis we find in the New Testament. In First Corinthians chapters. Uh, 12 through 14, for instance, the spirit giving, giving sovereignly according to his will, distributing gifts, not not all of the same gifts, but all have something. Each has some gift and some ability and some contribution to make according to his faith. And so God fills our hands and he fills our hearts, if only that we might give unto him, which is what he did here. For what they gave unto the Lord, if you read the descriptions, the fine linen, the fine uh, material for the tapestry, the gold, and so on, the stones. These were the very things that they plundered from the Egyptians. They were enriched in the Exodus, but not in order merely to fill their hands but but, but, rather to fill their hands that they might make their contribution to the Lord. When God causes us to abound, beloved, as he did Israel here, he often has an eye to prospering his church. And yet we also see that not all did so. All depart, verse 20, they all leave the sermon together, but not all returned, verse 21. Only those who had a willing heart... And God would ask no less or no more. And so we imagine that for as many as came willingly and eagerly to serve the Lord, there were some and perhaps many who stayed in their tents holding on to what they had brought up from Egypt. Their concern was for their own personal and temporal prosperity, not toward minding the worship of God. And I can think of no better way to describe the modern, or the average, uh, rather, the average professing Christian in America today. Matthew Henry says, "Many, there are many who are for true religion, provided it be cheap and will cost them nothing. Next, we see that the work of the Lord, uh, or, or the work, rather, of the people, that the Lord was calling the people to, was a skillful work. In other words, it was not a careless work, but a careful one. It was done according to the plan that he had given them and that it called for skill. It called for the skill of the artisans and of the women and so on. We might just ask ourselves very simply by way of application. Are we sure the same can be said of today's worship of God? Is it a skillful work? Are we really giving our best and our all? It was also spiritual work. We can't miss this. This comes out at the end in the calling and uh, and the equipping of these two men. Let me read it just to be sure I don't get it wrong. Bezalel and Aholiab, the two master builders or master workers as to the tabernacle. They were men who were called much as the Lord called Moses Men who were skilled in their calling and equipped to do this work. But they were not only full of skill, you see, but of the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Spirit of God. We read verse 31. Do you understand the importance of this? Especially that these two men should be men of the Spirit. It's because they were set up as the leaders of others in the building of the tabernacle. And those that lead others and teach them must be full of the spirit when the work is a spiritual one. For they are called to a spiritual work and are to lead others in spiritual service. Worship is not something that occurs on the earthly plane. It is something that brings man into the heavenlies. And that was true even in the old covenant. It was a transaction between man and God. And if we are not led in worship by men who... Who have something of heaven already in their hearts. The people will, will suffer for the want of spirituality and their ministers. But as a final point we might also notice. And we are looking again at the kinds of things that worship requires. There is good order in the church. We find that in Corinth. We find that again as a Presbyterian Distinctive, But it really ought to be present in every church. And so it was present in this church too. The good order of the church. The way that you find the good order is in the division of labor. If you read this passage again with this point in mind. You'll see it. It's unmistakable. They were careful. It was not a chaotic work. It was an orderly work. You see it in the offerings and in the building. But you, spe- you especially see it in the way, and this is something you find in the church today, that God set these two men over the work. He appointed leaders, or perhaps we could call them elders. These master workmen to do first the more difficult work, but then also to direct others in the lesser work, teaching them how to do it. That's something that you find in verse 34. And he put, and he has put in his heart the ability. To teach, you see, not just to work, but then not be bothered by others, but to lead them and in leading them to teach them. For as Matthew Henry says, pointing to a good biblical principle of biblical leadership, those who rule should teach. And that is a good rule to follow. It's the it's the rule that's laid down in the New Testament that elders are to rule. But in their rule, they're to be apt to teach. They must not seek, in other words, to direct others when they do not labor to teach them first is precisely the picture. Here is the picture in the New Testament, and it ought to be the rule of every church. Those who rule are to teach. And so those are the things we see. But having noticed these things. And seeing all the care that must go into God's worship, let our rule be this five points of application Five commitments that uh, I am calling you to the first rule being that we will go no further and no shorter than God's word requires, which is just to state what we call the regulative principle of worship. When God's will is made known, let us be sure to do it. No less, no more. Number two, that we will eagerly give ourselves to the work. Let all who have a willing heart come. But uh, by all means, in coming, let us come with eager hearts. To do cheerfully and heartily the work God is calling us to do. There's all the difference in the world in a joyful and a cheerful worshiper and one whose heart isn't in it. And believe me, I see it. Number three, that we will observe good order in the church always. And that we will devote our greater care and our best skill, or excuse me, our greatest care and our best skill in the worship of God. This is not a secondary concern, this is a primary concern. Number four, that we will eagerly seek the blessing of the Holy Spirit in our worship and especially pray for his influence and outpouring upon the church and those who lead her. But then number five, that as worship is seen above all as spiritual service in the presence of God and that for his sake we would endeavor always to commune with the triune God in worship who is Father, Son and Holy Spirit and in this We are especially mindful of the work of Christ, who is the true master builder of the church. For as the directory of public worship, now I will read it, says of him in our worship. Because Christ is the mediator of the covenant, no one draws near to God except through him alone. God's people enter the most holy place, the heavenly sanctuary. By the redeeming blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, open for them through the curtain that is his flesh. They draw near through him as their great high priest who has not entered a man-made sanctuary but heaven itself, now to appear for them in the presence of God. Public worship is to be conducted in a manner that plainly expresses conscious reliance upon the mediation and merits of Jesus Christ. But not just Jesus Christ, but the spirit of God. In the next section, it says public worship is to be conducted in rel- conducted in reliance on the gracious work of the spirit of the exalted Christ, which alone can make anyone capable of such sincerity, reverence, devotion, all expectation and joy. Hence, from its beginning to its end, public worship should be conducted in that simplicity, which manifests dependence on the spirit of Christ to bless His own ordinances. And finally. The triune God. Assembles his covenant people for public worship. In order to manifest and renew their covenant bond with him. And one another. The Holy Spirit engages them. And draws them into the Father's presence. As a living sacrifice in Christ. God has fellowship with them. Strengthening and guiding them for life. In his presence and service in his kingdom. Well I could read much more. I love the directory of worship. I only read those portions. To bring those points into a new covenant context and for us to see that the very things that are present in Exodus 35 are always present in a context of covenant worship. Only as we find ourselves now in the new and greater covenant. One which is perfected by the greater work of Christ in his death and in pouring his spirit upon the church. We see that we are better equipped than they to do the same things. And he, in doing this, did it to the same effect, that he might build his church. As he says in Matthew chapter 16, I will build my church, even as he promised. And there God's people might be found worshiping him at his command, offering spiritual service and spiritual sacrifices of praise, all to the glory of God. Such is a view of worship we find in scripture, and may we find it here in this place as well. Amen. And let us respond now to God's word by standing together and singing hymn number 250.